0: All right. Good morning to you. you. Okay. Welcome. If you're new to Citadel Square, my name is Steve. One of the pastors here. We, um, boy, you know, I was talking to one of the guys on the way in uh, in our church, and he said, "What do you got today?" I said, "Revelation 16." He said, "Another sermon on wrath." Uh, yep. That's what it is. I don't write the mail. I just, you know, I deliver it. That's what. I, that's my job. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 16. I had another guy in our church ask me about the chronology of Revelation this week. Uh, And I said, well, I I can do that. But uh, if you've noticed, I haven't spent a lot of time in this series talking about chronology and numbers of days. And I did that kind of particularly for a reason, because when you read the book of Revelation, uh, God is very precise in the information he gives in the book of Revelation. Uh, but he wants to make sure that you aren't consumed. Remember that, that great joke I had about God didn't give you a spirit of math, thinking about the, the number of the beast, right? He, he wants you to have a spirit of wisdom. And that's what the book of Revelation is meant to do for you. It's meant to uh, make a Christian uh, have their perspective shaped by the most important things. You with me? And that's, that's why the book of Revelation is here, is because we get to see things behind the veil. We get to see the spiritual forces of darkness. We get to see the, the dragon at work and raising up of the beast and the false prophet and, the, and politics and economics and social sins all coming to bear in this vortex of darkness. Uh, Into which God will enter and God will judge. So we're not, in Revelation 16, we're not but hours from Jesus' return. It began all the way in Revelation chapter 6 when uh, the Lamb took the seals and began to send forth the four horsemen and unsettle things that were happening. We saw the sealed in Revelation chapter seven, and those coming out of the tribulation in Revelation chapter seven. And then we see the the trumpet judgments happen, but then in the midst of the chronology, we've, we've been looking at biography. And we've taken multiple chapters to take a look at the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the world system that is arrayed against the Christian and the raising up of the antichrist who takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then we took a break in Revelation 14 and we said all of what is about to come, we had these future visions of victory, of the reaping of God that's gonna show up in the bowls and the return of Jesus Christ in the last battle. Revelation 15, we had this pre-wrath worship service and here we are in Revelation chapter 16, which is really, this chapter is the end. It's the end of the revelation of the truth of God and his wrath being poured out in the bowl judgments. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had a professor named Dr. Howard Hendricks. Some of you may know that name. He wrote a popular um, Bible study methods book. <clears throat> and in that, in that initial class that the seminary makes you take with Dr. Howard Hendricks, he showed us something that I think was very important for my own personal Bible reading. He said, when you come to biblical texts, especially texts that are narrative or texts that... Um, tell stories like parables or texts that in general are very uh, particular in their descriptions. He said, if there is an ocean, taste the sea spray. If you're on a boat in this story, feel the movement of the boat underneath your feet. If you're at a meal, smell the smells that are happening in the text. And that counsel is incredibly important for how you read a text like Revelation chapter 16. Because this is a place you don't want to see. This is a place you don't want to smell. This is a place you don't want to live in. Because this is like a horror movie. So if you were coming, this is a heavy text, this is a dark text, this is a text that shows you a side of God that makes you go, geez, God, how in the world can you do that to your creation? You're going to see God's wrath fall on kind of the four pillars of creation, the sun, the uh, waters, the the land itself, those who are on the land, and by the end, the air itself is going to be filled with 100-pound hailstones. It's this great uncreation text where creation was set up in Genesis 2 for the goodness and the care and the kindness of mankind. In Revelation 16, God takes the whole thing apart. So we're just going to read it and, and kind of move our way through it. And I'm going to make some comments on it because this text is, is so severe in its brevity. What, what do I mean? I mean, there are very, very simple sentences. It's not hard, The text is not hard to understand but it's gruesome and graphic in what God does to his creation. And the way that you're gonna interpret a text like this is going to be in what is said about what is going on. That when you read scripture a lot of times, you can, be, you can feel like, well, I don't know exactly what this means. This text isn't like that. It's going to be interpreted for you. So that as you read it, you're gonna see a certain side of God, and then you're gonna see heaven and the martyrs and God himself and Jesus Christ speak and tell you how you ought to live in light of what you have here in Revelation chapter 16. Okay, you with me? That's my intro. Buckle up and put on your bike helmet because it is about to get something in this text. Let's pray and ask God for his grace. Father in heaven, as we gather as your body here this morning, for these few moments as we look into your word in a text that uh, Father, I'll admit, feels overwhelming Would we see some things about you that uh, maybe we haven't seen before? Father, we long to know you for who you are. And we give thanks for your word that that gives light to our eyes and our understanding about who God is and uh, what you're like and how you have spoken and how we ought to order our lives based on what you have said and the character of who you are. And we pray that for the few minutes we look into your word here this morning that you would help us understand those things that we as a, as a body in these few minutes would say, holy is the Lord. Who is like this God? So Father, as those who come in who maybe have never read this text before, I pray for clarity and for grace, for the spirit to come alive in us, to give us eyes to see what you have to say to us. We pray that you would deepen us and develop us and create spiritual fruit in our lives and in our families and our workplaces and the relationships we have because we have seen something true about who you are here this morning. So, Father, we pray for your grace and plead for enlightenment in our minds and in our hearts to understand your word. And we trust that you'll give it through the power of your spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 16. You see how it starts there in your Bible. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, grab one right around you somewhere. There should be a black one that's in the pew in front of you. Turn all the way to your right to Revelation chapter 16. I think the page number is on um, on the screen there for you. All right. Revelation chapter 16. Now we've seen the sequential unfolding of the wrath of God that began with the seals. One, two, three, four, five, six. The seventh seal opened up and gave you the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets have sounded. The seventh trumpet sounded back in Revelation chapter 11 and it declared um, the victory of God over the kingdoms of this world. That the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. And now the final bold judgments will happen here. These, as I said, are you're probably hours away from Christ's return in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, What we're going to see next week in 17 and 18 is the destruction of Babylon, which is mentioned here in Revelation 16, but is explained in 17 and 18. So we take another chronological break. But what happens after 16 is 19, Jesus comes back. Hallelujah and amen. And I'm looking forward to that when we get there. But let's take a look here. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven, I'm sorry, from the temple, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, all the way through the wrath of God in the book of Revelation, what you've had is God's initiative moving the story forward. Right, You've had God continuing to, uh, when the lamb takes the scroll from the him who is seated on the throne and begins to open the scroll, what you have is the lamb bringing to conclusion and consummation all of God's purposes, that he alone has the authority to move the story forward. So all through the seals, trumpets, and the bowls, you're going to have God's initiative move the story forward. And what you're going to have here in this text is people responding to God and what he's doing. Okay, you with me on that? So these seven angels were given the seven bowls uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Revelation 15. They're clothed in linen and they stride forth with these bowls that are uh, more like saucers. The, the idea isn't pouring out like a pitcher. It, the idea is upending a bowl and everything is completely poured out in, these, uh, in this image. So these seven uh, angels have the seven bowls of the wrath of God and they are sent forward. These angels are, you're going to see consistent themes here in these bowls. Uh, if you remember, all through your Bible, you'll find uh, probably in the margin in Revelation chapter 16, you're going to see references back to Exodus. Do you see those? If you just glance down in your Bible, you'll see Exodus 7, Exodus 8, Exodus 9, and you're going to see a lot of similarities here. God's wrath throughout the scriptures is variously described You'll have God's wrath show up in localized events like Sodom and Gomorrah in Egypt, even in globalized events in the flood in Noah. You'll see God's wrath uh, demonstrated in what we've already talked about so far in the book of Revelation, the kind of sowing and reaping wrath, right? That what a man sows, that also will he reap. You have God's wrath revealed in Romans chapter one, where it says God gave them over to, do, to a debased mind to where you have God removing his hand of restraint on the sinfulness of mankind, which is similarly to what we've seen in the seal judgments when the four horsemen go forth and you have God's hand of restraint upon economics and the social and uh, relational sins of the day. Then you have the eschatological wrath of God, which is right here, which are the last days wrath of God until ultimately we result in the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire. So, The wrath of God here in these last bowl judgments is going to be the final end times wrath of God that's poured out on the earth. So here they come. Take a look here at uh, Revelation 16 verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. There's the alignment of both worship and recognition. We said the mark of the beast did two things. It um, denied any other God other than the beast. That it, it made a demand of complete commitment and solidarity. That the mark was an indication, an external indication of a heart filled with worship for the beast. And number two, it provided identification. It allowed everybody to know... Who is worshiping the beast at this time? And now, these individuals who've taken the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their right hand have another mark. They have another physical consequence of worshiping the beast. And it comes in the form of harmful and painful sores. There's only, these sores are only mentioned one other place. It's in Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus. That Lazarus, as he sat at the gate of the rich man, had sores that the dogs would come and lick. Now, this is uh, probably a greater intensification of the sores that show up on the Egyptians. The Egyptians experience boils. Here you have sores that are probably some element of of ulcers or uh, unhealable kinds of um, painful sores that break out on the kingdom of the beast and his worshippers this interestingly i don't know if boils and ulcers are interesting to you at all if that's i don't know if that's interesting maybe you're into that maybe that's you're like i'm re, you know i'm i'm a med student and that's my line of work that's where god's calling me is into skin diseases praise god for dermatologists uh, but but this idea here is that these sores are incurable They're incredibly painful. You sit down, there's pain. You lie down, you're pain. You're walking around, there's pain. There's there's in their body is the consequence of their spiritual idolatry, right? That's been the entire idea of the kingdom of the beast, is that the beast will set up a kingdom, declare himself to be God, and demand that everybody worships him upon pain of death. If you don't worship the image I set up, you die that the dragon goes down to earth and begins to persecute those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. He goes out to make war on those who would dare to say that there is a creator God of heaven and earth, would dare to say that Jesus is Lord and he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what breaks out in their bodies is the result of spiritual worship. Now, can that happen? Can broken worship create physical pain what do you think do you think there can be consequences in our lives of false worship and worshiping our own comfort and peace and safety and the things that we want for us and to experience the lusts of the flesh that result in the painful experience of physical consequences of spiritual idolatry well we could we could list that all day long couldn't we See, there's a recognition as this bowl is poured out that our physical lives are actually worshiping and spirit as well, right? That our worshipful lives and our physical lives are one and the same. That's what we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. That there isn't some sort of disjointed connection between our spiritual lives and our physical lives. They're brought together. We live together in that way. The decisions you make with your body are heartfelt worship decisions that have physical consequences. And this bowl is the end of all spiritual idolatry. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They didn't want God, but where did they want to live? Eden. We don't want God, we just want all the blessings. We want to be God and get all the blessings of being God, but we don't want God. God. And make no mistake, if you trade God, if you exchange the truth of God for a lie, this is where your life is headed. You will experience harm and pain because of false worship. It may not be today. It may not be six weeks from now. But false worship will inevitably bring you to a place of spiritual harm and spiritual pain. Am I right, Christians? You with me? man, that that is a reality, that there have been seasons in our lives for people in this room where we realize our false worship took us to places of harm and pain. Verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now back in Revelation 8, with the trumpet judgments, you only had a third of the sea struck by the great mountain that came into the ocean. Remember that? A third of the ships destroyed, a third of the things alive in the sea turned to blood. Here, you have a total uh, cursing of the sea life, a total cursing of the place where um, commerce happens among nations. Now, we live in the low country. You ever drive over a bridge at low tide? We live near the water. Now imagine, now this isn't, blood doesn't smell good anyway, but this isn't rich, life-giving, oxygenated blood. This is dead guy blood. And if you thought this morning, I'm gonna go hear a sermon about bloody oceans, I'm glad that you came to this church. Because here's this this striking, we're, we're at bowl number two. And the seawater on earth is turned to dead man blood. Now imagine the smell. Imagine the overwhelming sense and revulsion that you would have as you stand at the edge of a continent and look out into the ocean filled with blood. Every living thing died that was in the sea. Number four, verse four, I'm sorry, third angel. Third angel pulled out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. In the trumpet judgments, you only had water turning bitter. Now the springs of water have turned to blood, the oceans have turned to blood, and people are filled with incurable festering sores. Now, you may ask a question at this point. Well, we've eliminated fresh drinking water. We've eliminated any and all sea life and any fishing and food that we're able to accomplish. Our medical supplies are obviously running low. You can't clean any of these wounds that anybody has. There's constant festering pain and frustration that's happening upon uh, the followers of the beast and the kingdom and those who have received the mark of the beast and worship the beast and follow after him. Doesn't this seem a little bit overboard? Doesn't this seem a little bit like like overkill? Is there some other way that, that God could act and react to this kingdom that has set up the Antichrist in opposition to God and to his purposes? And that question is answered for you in Revelation 16, verse five. Because it's really helpful when you read these. It's so over, the sensory language is so overwhelming when you read something like this, isn't it? And it's helpful to have heaven's perspective on the things that are happening on earth, amen? Isn't that good? Aren't you glad you have a Bible and you can uh, understand God's perspective on things that are happening on earth? Well, here we have heaven speaking, and we have this angel speaking in Revelation 16, verse five. I heard the angel in charge of the waters. Now, you remember last week we had an angel who was in charge of the fire, right? And now we have an angel who is in charge of the waters. Now, the the very place that this angel has authority over and has control over, God has ruined. That this angel now is watching his responsibility turn from life-giving to death-giving. And his response is an interesting one. Let's take a look here. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Now, that's how God has been referred to in Revelation chapter 15 already. We said this a couple of weeks ago, but that he is both holy and he's true and he's just. Now, for an angel to say, God, this is just, means that the punishment fits the crime, right? That's what justice means, that that there's agreement that this is the right response to the sins of this worldwide power set up against God and his Christ and his people. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. This is not arbitrary, this is not an accident, this is the decision and the will of God to pour out his wrath upon the earth. Now, and he gives you an explanation. He doesn't just say God is just, which helps us know that heaven agrees with the judgments of God, why? Well, heaven agrees with the judgments of God because they see God clearly, right? They completely understand God and who he is. There's no uh, misunderstanding in heaven about God and his glory and his holiness and his power and his justice and his truth. Angels understand that perfectly and clearly. But there's also a following explanation for those of us who live on earth to understand that these judgments that come from God in heaven that heaven agrees with and heaven acknowledges comes as a result of things that are happening on earth. Look at the next verse in verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. This kingdom of the Antichrist on earth at this time seeks complete and utter world domination. It is not the coexist sticker. This kingdom demands complete submission and worship to the will of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon. The false unholy trinity demands your complete submission and worship. And we will squash and kill and martyr and slay any and all who will come against our rule. And the angel in heaven says, they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This kingdom kills the saints, those who are, have right relationship with God by grace through faith and what Jesus has done, who have washed their garments in the blood of the lamb, and this kingdom hates the prophets, those who would dare speak the truth in a sinful day about God, his holiness, his righteousness, the, the, the depravity of their day, the only hope of salvation being in Jesus Christ. And they will squash all of that and the angel in heaven says, it's what they deserve. Now, let, let's think about that just for, just for a minute. Here's a heavenly perspective, an angel's perspective, and he says that religious persecution of God's people deserves drinking blood. Now, when you read that, <clears throat> You may think to yourself, uh, is that what they deserve? Don't you, don't you bring to a text like this a little bit of like, I'm not sure if that's what they deserve. Is that what they deserve? God says it's what they deserve, but I'm not sure I agree with God. You have that in your heart? Now, you know you're not supposed to say that out loud, but you go like, this is kind of hard to read, God. There's a little bit here that I, I, it seems overboard. Turning the oceans to blood and the fresh water to blood and constant painful ulcers and boils and sores that are incurable. And, and that tension in our hearts is the source of one of our greatest problems in understanding God and who He is. Because what we do when we read texts like this is we bring our preconceived notion of what is just and what is uh, deserving. You ever do this, parents, you ever have this conversation? You have a kid who makes some choice, right, that's a sinful choice, and you've got to have this discussion with your spouse. What do we do to discipline this sinful choice? What is the appropriate judgment, the appropriate response for the crime? And you're always working as a parent to do this, right? Does the punishment fit the crime? Am I too mad and am I going overboard on the sin of my son or daughter. Does anybody else do this? Okay, you've done this before. Okay, it's just me and Suzanne. You all got this parenting thing down, right? Uh, and you're always, you're always fighting In your heart and mind, you go, was that too harsh? Was that too gentle? Am I going to get another chance later? Did I miss my chance to discipline my child? Am I helping form them in godliness? And, And we don't know, because a lot of times we have this moment happen in our family where we go, is this the right response from dad who loves jesus and am i disciplining my child not in anger but in holiness that they might be built up in the fear and admonition of the lord and i just don't know what the right thing to do is but when you read a text like this you have to have a perspective from heaven that helps define for you how awful god finds sin right it doesn't help if we define sin between humans arbitrarily Because some people say, we've got to respond harsher to that sin. Other people feel like we ought to give them another chance, right? When you read the scriptures and you go, the wages of sin is death, you go, "Ah, maybe the wages of sin are a mulligan. I mean, shouldn't the wages of sin be like, get another shot? Or like, you know, in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die? How about like the day that you eat of it, we'll just cut the tree down and we'll try again. I like you feel like when you read the scriptures that, that you have to have God order these categories for you. Because otherwise you, defi- you define and I define and we define sin, all of us, too little. And we define s- sin as merely cultural or temporal or in a human kind of way in our relationships. And if we don't understand sin the way God defines it, we never appreciate the way God responds. So here is heaven responding to the martyrdom of God's people. And heaven itself, the angel in charge of the waters, saying, This is justice. This is exactly right. Now, this is important. There's a lot of conversation about injustice in our culture in this day and time. And we said before that we've got to define God as the one who is truly just and truly true. And if you only do that, you only have the standard of God and his judgment, you look forward to this time, you're going to have a hard time because you're going to interact with culture in a limited kind of way. And this text gives you another perspective that brings and helps us to understand justice rightly. Now, let me explain. So far, we've had heaven's perspective on the sins on earth. You with me? Move your head in any direction you want. Okay. Okay. You're with me. What you're going to have next is the response of those who have lost their life for being faithful to Jesus Christ in a wicked and sinful day. What do they think? I have heaven's perspective that this is a righteous judgment, but you also have the victims who are about to speak up and have another opinion. That's going to confirm heaven's opinion so that you're going to have the standard of God's justice in heaven and the victims of injustice both responding. Look at verse 6 and I heard the altar saying now we've seen the altar throughout the book of Revelation all the way back in Revelation chapter 6 underneath the altar were the souls of those who had been beheaded for following Jesus Christ. And they cried out as they lived underneath the altar. They were given a, a white robe and told to wait a little bit till the full number of their brothers have come in. But they, they cried out to God saying, how long until you avenge our blood? How long until your justice comes? And now as those who are on earth are experiencing painful uh, uncurable boils and sores on their body as the oceans turn to blood and fresh water is gone. Those beneath the altar say this, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. See, you can have the standards of God, but we can live in a time and place where we feel like there's still injustice We can live in a time and place that with the right lawyer and the right plea deal that you don't get what you deserve and you can get away from justice. You with me? Right? You ever see that? You feel that? You go, I'm not sure. And there's this conversation. Did that judge make that right judgment? Does that punishment fit that crime? Or was there savvy conversations happening so that it just resulted in probation? And here are those who have lost their lives, the ultimate victims of injustice who who have been crying out to God to show up and to judge and they agree with heaven's standard. They acknowledge that there is a God of justice. There is a God of truth. And when he speaks and when he judges, you bring together the standards of God, the injustice done to his people, and you bring them together in Revelation chapter 16. And the altar and those who have experienced injustice say, that is right. And the standards of heaven are agreed with by the angels. And they say, that is right. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Remember in the the trumpet judgments, God could turn down the the stars and the moon and the sun? He dropped it by 30%. Well, God, you know, he uses the heavenly dimmer switch and he brings it the other way here. The sun scorches people with fire. They're scorched by the fierce heat and they curse the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Three times you're going to see these people curse God. All through the book of Revelation, you have an exposure of God, and it's like a long exposure of God and who he is. You're watching him execute judgment and at the same time accomplish redemption, and you see his patience and his mercy and his restraint, and now by the end, you begin to see the full fury of the wrath of God, and it doesn't matter what has been seen by the people on earth. They hate this God who dares to judge them for their sin. Doug Wilson, who's a pastor in in Idaho, said the atheist has two main tenets in what they believe. One, there is no God, and two, I hate him. This is the first time people in the book of Revelation curse and blaspheme God, which means now they are walking in the ways of the one who began the blaspheming in this book, the Antichrist. They hate God, they curse him, they do not repent and do not give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now you've had the sun, the fresh water, the sea water, and the physical creation of humankind experience the consequences of their rebellion and idolatry of God. Now what you have as these bowl judgments begin to go forward is that God now aims them at the kingdom of the beast. And they're poured out on the throne. In verse 10, the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed. There's the second time, the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. In Exodus, it talks about the darkness that falls upon the land of Egypt. And it says in Exodus, I think it's nine, it says there was a darkness that could be felt. That when you're in a place that's dark, and I mean dark, dark, and you can't put your hand in front of your face, it's a claustrophobic feeling, isn't it? That it is pressing upon you, the no light reality. And here's what God does to the kingdom who is set up against himself. He turns turns the lights off. The thing that on earth at this time had been the hope of the world, that there must be somebody to save us from the wrath of God, now God turns the lights out on it. So that provides no more power, no more glory, no more light on this planet, presuming that their control and their power might be the thing that saves them in the last day. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For their demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Skip 15 just for a second. He finishes the thought and he says this. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So now as he turns the lights off on the kingdom, the three deceptive spirits go out from the center of the Antichrist empire to begin to bring everyone together for the last battle that lasts about that long in Revelation 19. Just a moment. That God now begins to gather all of this opposition and all of these kings under the authority of the spiritual deception of their day and bring them together in the plain of Megiddo. Now, in the midst of this, as the wrath of God is falling, there's boils, there's bad water everywhere, there's darkness on the land. Jesus speaks. In your Bible, do you have red? You may, your Bible may have a red kind of language. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of this, Jesus speaks? And Jesus speaks, strangely enough, he speaks a blessing. This is the third blessing that you have in the book of Revelation. The first we were from uh, Revelation 14 where the voice from heaven said, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. And the spirit responds and said, blessed indeed. Those are your first two blessings that there's coming a day where those who will die will experience ultimate fulfillment. They will lose their life and save it for always. And here in the midst of a culture that has gone crazy in the midst of God's wrath, who is falling down upon those with Uh, who, who cannot drink water, who experience pain at every turn. Jesus speaks. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus speaks a blessing. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. That exposed term is used in other places in the Bible, which, which means not ashamed. In the scripture, shame isn't so much a, a personal subjective feeling. The idea of shame is that you have put your faith in something that will ultimately fail you. It's that you have trusted something that when it comes right down to it, can't sustain you through death. And Jesus, in the midst of, all of the wrath of God that is falling says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Now that's something that we've, you've probably heard before in Jesus' teaching, right? Keep your finger in Revelation 16 there just for a minute and come back to Matthew 24. As Jesus is talking about the, the coming of the Son of Man and the, the fig tree illustration he gives, look at Matthew 24 verse 36. Matthew twenty four, thirty-six But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We're moments away from the coming of the Son of Man in Revelation. You know that? Moments before he returns. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay what? Awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, there it is, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So I think in Revelation 16, this admonition is given to those who are still holding to their faith. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells the disciples, when you see all these things happening, raise your head, for your redemption is at hand. He's right there. Come on. let me show you one more spot on this. Turn to your right to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. A section that says, the day of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There it is again. How does the, the idea of a thief coming is is that he comes suddenly, quickly. He's there. That's how Revelation 19 is going to happen. It's not this slow reveal. He goes, boom, the heavens part, and here he comes. Verse three, While people are saying there's peace and security. Who do you think in this day is saying there's peace and security? So the one who follows the Antichrist. We can can buy and we can sell and we can have protection under his name and we have an ability to save our lives from the wrath of God that is falling. We can follow this person who's calling himself God, but I'm going to follow him, put my hope in him, because only there I can find peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. We've said this before, in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. They come like labor pains. You know how labor pains come? Boom, they come. Increasing intensity, increasing power, increasing frequency. That's how they come. Just like the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. They will not escape, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us what? Keep awake and be sober. All through the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Consistently, all the way through. Would you argue, would you agree that people who are sleeping and naked have really no ability to fend off a thief? Right? They're not paying attention at all and how sad it is to apply this to spiritual lives that have no sense of the anticipation of Christ's return. To walk through our spiritual lives unaware. Do you, do you struggle like I do to live in kind of an eternal present? That all of a sudden I look up and decades have gone by. I look up and that season of life is over and I, and I live in such a way where I focus on the present but I, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready my spiritual life is not in tune with things that are happening that I might be prepared. This is one of the several parables that Jesus gives at the end of Matthew. The 10 virgins parable of five who are ready and five who are not. Of his people who, of the leaders of the day that talk to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, are you telling these parables for us or for others? And he said, blessed is the servant who's doing the will of God when he returns, right? That at the end, moments before Christ's return, here's the call. Blessed are you if you're ready. Blessed if you're ready today, and blessed if you're ready in that day. It doesn't change the command that God gives to His New Testament people, and it doesn't change the command that He gives to the tribulation saints who are just watching the wrath of God get poured out on the kingdom of the beast. Be ready, He's coming. This, for Christians, is so important, to live not with the uh, retirement in mind. You with me? Not to live with 30 years from now. But to live with the acknowledgement that every moment between between here and when I see Christ is meant to be, I am clothed, I am prepared, I am ready, I am alert, he is coming back and I am living like it. Do you believe he's coming back? I mean... If he's coming, let's be ready. Let's be aware of what is going on. Let's not get lulled to sleep by a culture that says he's not. Come back to Revelation 16, wherever you are. Revelation 16, verse 7. I'm sorry, 17. The seventh angel. Here you go. Here's your final bowl. Poured out his bowl into what? The air, you've had the sun, you've had the water, you've had the land struck with boils. Now the bowl gets poured out on the air. Uh, The Satan is called the kingdom of the prince of the power of the, the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple from the throne saying, it's done. There's your next quote. It's over. Now watch this. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. You know, the plagues in Egypt are described as something which Egypt had never experienced since the day it was founded. And you have, I don't know if you have a cross, you might have a cross reference there or not, I don't know if you do, but... The idea here is that from the beginning of time, God has not decreated like he created in the beginning. And here, he's decreating. Look at what it says. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, probably Jerusalem. The city of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. In context, it's a bad thing to be remembered by God. Do you... Do you think God will forget? We're forgetful. Do you remember the sins that you committed in your 20s? Maybe some of you are in your 20s and you go, this was last week, Steve. (laughs) I remember. I still feel guilty about it. I've forgotten massive amounts of sins that I have committed. And the scary thing when a scripture is like this is that God does not forget. When we open up Revelation chapter 20 and we see men, the books are open and men are judged for the deeds that they have done. That there, and there's a list. And God says, I haven't, my judgment is not indiscriminate upon the kingdom of the beast. I remember that kingdom. I remember that king and my judgment is coming for him. Why do we need so many chapters to understand the wrath of God in the end times? Where in the life of Jesus we get darkness and hours. You know that? It's as if God turns the lights off at the cross and then he turns them back on in the book of Revelation to go, Do you know what he took for you? Do you know the, the greatness and the fury of the wine of the wrath of God? Do you know what Jesus Christ took on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you don't understand until you get to the book of Revelation. You don't understand until you look at the horror of sin against a perfect and holy and righteous judge. This is why we have such a hard time defining sin because we don't define it according to a perfect and righteous and holy God. We define it personally, interpersonally. We define it seasonally. We define it based upon the age of individuals. We define it all sorts of ways other than looking to the scriptures to define for us what sin is. And at the end, God remembers to make her drink the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Verse 20: every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found in great hailstones, about 100 pounds each. I did some, this is fun when you get math like this. Uh, it's about the size of a 21, 22-inch beach ball. You know that? That's a hundred pounds of ice. Now, we've got, we've got mathematicians in here, engineers in here. Do the, the You can do this, and we'll post it on the blog, and we'll have a video about you, it'll be great this week. We can talk about how much force does a beach ball sized amount of ice coming at terminal velocity from heaven how much force does that hit the planet with nowhere is safe this is the great rearranging of the earth cities break into pieces hailstones from heaven destroy everything jesus inherits this earth you got to think he comes back and he goes this place is a mess let's make a new one right They fell from heaven on people and this text closes in such a grievous way. They curse God for the plague of the hail. Watch this. Because the plague was so severe. You know what they don't say? They curse God for the plague of hail because their sin was so atrocious. Remember when Cain... And God talk. And God says, I'm gonna put a mark on you, nobody's gonna kill you, you're gonna be a wanderer throughout the whole earth. And Cain says something, just like they say here, my punishment's too great to bear. Not I have murdered my brother and his blood cries out from the earth for justice. But God, you're, it's too harsh. You're too unkind, God. This is why this text is so important to understand that heaven agrees and the victims of injustice agree. You hear me? Don't miss that. They agree that this is just. And these people on earth say, it's too severe. It's too much to go against this God. So let me ask you a question. As we close in thinking about this, I'm going to have our band come up and we're going to close singing it as well with our soul. How do you close thinking about Revelation chapter 16? Let me ask kind of a diagnostic question because you can read this and you can have multiple responses. You can go, God, how great is your grace and your mercy that you have spared me from the wrath of God. That I have a wrath bearer, the propitiation the scriptures talk about the one who stands between me and the holy, just, and true blast furnace of God Almighty. Or you can go, Steve, this, this God is irrational. This God is crazy. How in the world would we worship a God like this? And what lies in that question is really a question that you can carry out of here this morning. You can carry it into your Monday through Friday. How do you respond to what God is doing? Now, if we believe that God is sovereign and God is in control and God doesn't waste moments, then you will come through, let me, let me get like, let me honest with you, I, I didn't preach last week and I came in here and I sat up there and I just listened to us sing. And I was dealing with just discouragement in my heart and just a variety of things, like I, you know I, I'm not always up as a person. Like there are times where I get discouraged by people. That ever happened to you? Yeah, both of you are nodding like they're right here. Don't say anything. <laughs> and I brought, like, I'll be honest, I brought discouragement into this place. Discouragement over, over me, over people, over relationships. And I, and I sat up there and I heard our church sing and I heard the word preached. And it, God was so kind Because I I believe that God's in charge of our moments, right? Not just our end and not just our beginning, but all the way through in the middle, God's in charge, right? I believe that. I don't believe that all the time, right? Just like you don't believe that all the time. Because you feel like, God, why are we going through this season and this point of hardship and all this thing that you're making me go through? And I sat up there and I had a conversation with a couple and they, they just encouraged me. They just spoke like encouragement to me, like, hey, I'd never met them before. They came up and shook my hand and we talked for a minute and they encouraged me. Then I went to Sunday night prayer. I I heard AJ preach and I was thankful for God to have a man here in the pulpit who could preach God's word and encourage our church and and to do that, I gave thanks for that and I went to Sunday night prayer. Let me say, if you're not going to Sunday night prayer, like I'm one of the senior adults, okay? Maybe, uh, Dean, you're older than me by a couple of years. You know, like Dean and Patty were there we got, we got all of these young studs who are coming to pray to God. And Addison, uh, who you just saw, w- w- led our prayer time. And I went to prayer time. I didn't have to lead it. I just came and I, and I sat and I prayed with a group of men. And, and we asked God for his favor. And, and uh, one of our leaders, Steve, he said, we're going to take time to pray for Steve And I went, I didn't ask for that. I didn't expect that. But that was kind and God encouraged me in that. And then we stood up and we all give thanks about areas in life that God was doing. And I was just still discouraged. And I have these people who are standing next to me who are giving thanks about how God has led them and brought them here and God's redeemed areas of their life and how God was kind and he was, he, he was blessing them in their season of life. And I had to just give thanks to God to go, God, I didn't do that. I wasn't in charge of that. But God, I need to hear what you're doing in, my, in the lives of people in our church. Because I can get discouraged, right? And I, I can feel that. And our lives... When we read, you know, we read, this is, this is um, Revelation 16 is the newspaper of tomorrow, right? You get that? This is, this is future truth. And we live in these in-between times between past truth, what Jesus is on the cross, future truth, what God's gonna do to heal everything and solve everything and make everything right again. And we live in this middle area where we need to hear the words of those people around us who are experiencing God. And... I can move from discouragement to encouragement because I believe God is sovereign, but I also, when I hear people speak and sing and and talk about God's truth, what it does is it fills me up. So if you come in this morning and you go, Steve, this is a hard text to hear and this is a hard text to understand and I don't know if I like the wrath of God, then I pray that our church would be a place for you where you can hear the truth of what God is doing in the lives of people. And that we can sing together and can encourage one another. That we can pray together and watch God do a work of salvation and redemption in the minds and hearts of our church. You with me? Look, this is hard truth. I get that. That's hard. But you're going to get up on Monday morning and you're going to wrestle with this question. Do I agree with what God is doing right now or not? And the end of that question is either going to be, blessed is he who stays awake, fully clothed, trusting me, He's in the word. She's in the word. She's trusting that God is working things out. Or the end of that question is going to be, I hate him. I curse his name. There's no two options. And my heart for you and our heart in this church would be that we would be awake and we would be ready that you would hear the truth of God's word and it would cause you to encourage you and get into the body of Christ here and to love and to serve and to know the gospel and to, and to cling to Jesus and to walk with him through these seasons of life and that you'd be ready. Father, we, we acknowledge that this is a difficult text. We acknowledge that our hearts are a lot of times all over the place and Father, we need the encouragement of the body and the scriptures and your spirit and the truth that if nothing else, this text demonstrates and shows us who you are. And for that, we give thanks. We give thanks that the scriptures are here to demonstrate to us who you are and the truth of your character and your kindness and goodness and your truth and your justice and your power. Father, the Psalms say that who considers the glory due you because of your wrath? Father, I'll admit, I don't. And in this text that we look at with sobriety and fear, we pray that we would live lives in light of the truth of what we see here. Father, would you do that in our church, that you would give us a greater hunger for who you are, that we would gain greater confidence in in our lives of walking with brothers and sisters in the faith, and that you would find us ready for your return. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.